0: This episode of DRIVE is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Leila McKinnon and welcome to DRIVE, a podcast about driven women delivering in their chosen fields in partnership with Uber Eats for a second year. Each week, I speak to strong and passionate women who are leading their lives their way. I've been a journalist for nearly 30 years and have interviewed some of the biggest celebrities in the world, but along the way, I've discovered that the most interesting stories often come from people who we've never or very rarely heard from before. Professor Kate Drummond is one of Australia's top surgeons, the Director of Neurosurgery at Royal Melbourne Hospital, and she's a passionate supporter of women in her industry. And she cares deeply for her patients who are at their most vulnerable. You'd imagine that this work would completely consume her, but wait until you hear what else she does. I spoke to her about why work-life balance is a myth. Going after what you want, the mysteries of the brain, and how to keep yours in good shape. Professor Kate Drummond, welcome to DRIVE. So I'm interested, how did you end up in brains? I mean, it is fascinating, but was it an early decision or is it something that came apparent throughout your studies?
1: Well, it's all pretty ordinary, really. I didn't even decide I wanted to be a doctor until I got to just before the final exams in high school, And I went into medicine to be an obstetrician because I didn't really want to look after sick people. I thought I'd quite enjoy delivering babies. And then I delivered a baby and I thought I don't ever want to do that again ever in my entire life. (laughs) So uh, I quite liked the gynecological surgery, um, which was a a lot of cancer surgery. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll do general surgery. And as an intern, to do the rotation that I wanted to do in general surgery, I had to do a rotation through neurosurgery. And uh, the first time I saw a really sick brain tumour patient, I thought, yeah, this is really something that I can do. Some, you know, these are patients who I can look after. So from that time on, I was completely hooked.
0: There's nothing ordinary about that story at all. And I have so many questions. And I'm going to start with what was it about bringing a baby into the world that made you never want to do that again?
1: Oh, look, I think we all just have our tolerances for various things, don't we? I mean, of course, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with bringing your baby into the world, but it's such an uncontrolled situation. There's some moral and ethical dilemmas associated with it. And I just thought, this is just not something that I'm going to be comfortable with. So, yeah, I was just a more sort of a surgical bent. It's very messy, that whole birth thing.
0: Um, Oh, yes. Tell me about it. Uh, Yeah, I've I've been there a couple of times (laughs) myself. Um, So it's more about control and precision, I would imagine, Uh, brain surgery. I mean, the level of the precision and the level of the pressure must be something extraordinary. And I'd imagine it would take a different kind of person to do that. And you are that person.
1: Yeah, it's as with every profession, there's that range of skills and, you know, there are some neurosurgeons who it's just all about the technique of the most difficult operations. There are some neurosurgeons where it's about the decision-making and the care of patients with certain diseases as well, you know, the surgery as well. But there is sort of nuance and to different aspects of it. And for me, it was about caring for these incredibly vulnerable people who, well, certainly for patients with brain tumours, you know, they've got the double whammy, they've got a cancer, but they've also got a disease of the brain that really hits at who they really are. They're a very vulnerable group of patients. It's not just the brain cancer patients, it's the trauma patients, and even the patients who need spinal surgery. It's a, you know, it's a real privilege to look after them at that vulnerable time in their life, which is somewhat different to Fixing an appendix or a broken leg, or at least in my mind, not that you know if you've got an appendix or a broken leg that you're ungrateful for what people can do for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I think about the brain, and as little as I know about it, and you know, like a lot of people, I've read Oliver Sacks and, and been captivated. But there's a lot we don't know still, isn't there? It's a real frontier of how which parts of the brain do what, and where do we go when we're unconscious and There's a lot of exciting things that are yet to be
1: found. There's a massive amount we don't know. I continue to be completely flummoxed at times why some patients do extremely well after the same surgery that another patient is just completely floored by it with fatigue and confusion and inability to really recover and get back to normal life and someone goes straight through it as if nothing had happened. And the ability of the brain in some situations, to heal itself. A great example is, you know, I do quite a lot of surgery with the patient awake to map out the functional areas in the brain. And sometimes you go back a second time, you can see that the brain's moved the function around and and bits of the brain that you couldn't take out before, you can take out now to get the tumour out because the brain's moved function around. I mean, that's just extraordinary. But then there are other patients who you think, oh, you know, this person will really recover, and then they don't recover. Um, I mean, we really don 't understand a lot of that stuff, and we don 't understand uh, a lot of the symptoms that patients get when they 've got a brain problem we don 't understand why having some brain problems cause fatigue, for instance, or sleep disturbance we don 't understand any of that, how it affects your quality of life so it's it's pretty amazing.
0: will you look back, do you think one day um, you know the way we look back at surgery without anesthetic or using leeches? And will we look back and think, wow, I can't believe we did some of those things? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I,
1: I, mean, I hope that one day we get smart enough with some fancy drug or immune therapy or that brain tumour surgery becomes obsolete. That'd be my hope. Now, women dominate enrolment
0: in medical degrees and only 23.8% go on to surgical training is one figure I read. I haven't triple-checked that. But only 9 to 12% of surgeons are women. What, what are some of the things that you think that lead to that drop-off?
1: It's a very complex matrix of what causes that. One of the really important things is just that it's not been made a friendly profession for women. Uh, and that starts right in medical school, right from the, the first comment of, oh, I'd like to be a surgeon. Oh, well, do you want to have a family? Just those little well-meaning comments, of, oh, it'll be very difficult for you. But, but, you know, you're smart enough, but, you know, keep going, but it'll be very difficult. Sort of small comments like that, that right up to the way we do our rosters, the way we don't have the ability to have family-friendly rostering practices, the way there's not enough women role models and mentors and sponsors to really help young women to get into the profession. Uh, And that won't change until there are more women in the profession to make that change happen. So we really need to socially engineer that change. Yeah, because... Men somehow manage to be fathers and
0: have families and be surgeons. And haven't we reached the stage where parents are parents and a parent can take on one role? I mean, it's oh,
1: it's just ridiculous we're still here. Well, we just wrote a group of Australian neurosurgeons just had the editorial in the recent issue of Neurosurgery Focus. The, the, the issue was called women leaders in neurosurgery. The opening paragraph of this celebratory issue was, you know, sort of thank you very much for having this celebratory issue, but we do like to point out that if this was about men leaders in neurosurgery, you wouldn't say men leaders in neurosurgery. You'd just say leaders in neurosurgery, and that many of the statements that you'll see throughout this uh, article are patently ridiculous if you change the gender. Statements like um, the biggest barrier to women entering neurosurgery was the incongruity with motherhood. Well, if you change that round to the biggest incongruity for men entering neurosurgery was fatherhood, it just becomes completely ridiculous. So no one questions whether a, a man in medicine or neurosurgery or any profession can become a father. So we have to change that dynamic. Yes, exactly. And in
0: male-dominated professions such as politics or the medical world, you know, you have these ongoing problems. They're slow, slow changed. You know, given what we've seen coming out of Canberra lately, is the medical profession any more enlightened than our seat of government, or is it on a par?
1: I don't think any profession where there's a great gender disparity functions in a normal way. And I say that not only for the professions that are male-dominated, I say it also for the professions that are female-dominated. I think, for instance, teaching and nursing suffer from a lack of having more men in their profession because, of course, they're probably not as respected as what they should be and they would benefit from having more men in that profession. So I I don't think anything functions if it is not reflective of the society in which it functions. There will always be problems. Tell me a bit about yourself um, apart
0: from... You know, you're so heavily involved in writing about neuroscience and in leading women in surgery. You're, of course, the director of of neurosurgery at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Do you have time for anything else? And what kind of things do you like to do?
1: Oh, I have lots of time. I don't have time for commuting. I don't have time for television. I don't have time for doing nothing. I go to the theatre a lot. I go out to the movies. I go to the symphony. I run. I exercise, um, and this year, stupidly, I've enrolled in a graduate diploma of theology. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Oh, really? <laughs> what what attracts you about yeah. that? I actually want to do a PhD with a theological slash brain tumor flavor and went went to the, the theological school and found out that I'm not actually qualified to do a theological PhD. So I need to do some groundwork, which I'm so enjoying. It's it's fantastic. A lot of it, of course, is the history of the, the church, which is the history of Western civilization. So it's absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm learning so much. It's the first time in many years I've had to look up the words because I don't understand them. Oh, that's brilliant. And I'm imagining a, a book coming out of this, something like Finding God in the Brain. Well, I hadn't thought of a Book. My other obsession is dinosaurs. I've got a real interest in archaeology and, and dinosaurs, so I am writing a book, a children's book of Bible stories with dinosaur characters, with a co-author, a friend of mine in Israel. So that's that's my book at the moment. A di- Sorry, can you repeat that? A dinosaur book about religion. A dinosaur,
0: a book of Bible stories Bible for children stories. with
1: dinosaurs as the characters.
0: Oh, that sounds <laughs> excellent. That is so random and and interesting. And I feel like you're just bubbling over with ideas.
1: I think if you frame your life not as, oh, I'm so busy, but as, oh, I've got so many opportunities, it does change how you view getting stuff done. That is a good tip. I think uh, uh, anybody listening to this can take that
0: away. I know that I will. I was kind of verging there on feeling like the world's biggest underachiever having spoken to you, but that's a good tip to set me off in the right direction. Um, What kind of advice would you give, perhaps in particular young women, about life and about work and about working in a male-dominated profession? What springs to mind?
1: Um, Be yourself, uh, thinking that you have to be a particular way looking perhaps at the women who've really made it ahead of you, they've probably had to really, like me, mould themselves to be a particular way to fit in. Don't do that anymore because we want women in all of their great diversity. Uh, Get a mentor or really a sponsor. You want more than a mentor. You want someone who will push you forward and give you opportunities and give you advice and be bold about asking for that. Don't worry about work-life balance. Choose what you want to do first, something you love, and you'll work the balance out later. I think the most miserable people are the people who settle for something else because they think they want some sort of work-life balance when actually it's all a myth really there there isn't work life balance no matter what you do it's this is not a surgical problem it's an everyone problem so choose something you love and and work at it and it'll it'll work out in the end
0: yeah it's not a balance it's more like a juggle isn't it and and you can keep the balls in the
1: air if you're doing the thing that you love well surgeons love to make it a a surgeon problem if you're running a 711 franchise to put your kids through private school or a lawyer trying to make partner or an architect trying to get famous or a mother of five children, everyone's balancing stuff and working hard. You know, we make it, it's our special problem, but it's not our special problem. It's, it's everybody's problem. So I think you can work it out if you look at it in a more generic way like that. It sounds like a lot of your advice boils down
0: to go for it. Don't question yourself, don't overthink it and don't believe what other people tell you.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. That may be to my detriment at times, but I do think that taking opportunities as they come is is a good way to surprise yourself, I guess, and to end up somewhere that you didn't think that you'd be able to get. So I do think, yeah, taking opportunities is really important.
0: We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after a message from our partner Uber Eats.
1: Uber Eats is proud to support Feed Appeal who are dedicated to improving the lives of people experiencing hunger or food insecurity. The work of Feed Appeal and their partner charities has always been crucial in providing meals for struggling Australians. But since COVID-19, there has been a sharp increase in food relief requests, with many Aussies reaching out to ask for help for the first time in their lives. Throughout the pandemic, Feed Appeal have worked incredibly hard to maintain their vital services and innovate new ways to help those in need. And as part of the ongoing partnership between Uber Eats and Feed Appeal, more than 760,000 meals have been delivered to vulnerable households. If you're looking for help or know someone in your community who is, please reach out to one of Feed Appeal's partner charities in your state at feedappeal.org.au.
0: Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Professor Kate Drummond. When you talk about science and theology, that's such an interesting combination because it's often portrayed as a dichotomy. It's one or the other. Do you see God in science, in the brain?
1: Of course. I don't know that it's a dichotomy. It's only a dichotomy if if you have that very fundamentalist view of the stories in the Bible. Otherwise, they line up perfectly to being the world in which we live with God in it and with God being the creator of science, but with us understanding it in only a partial way. I mean, I think we just don't understand it. So I don't try and line it up too much. I just hold both things in my mind in their own way, quite happy to live with that tension of not understanding it. Maybe one day we'll... We'll find out how it all really works because we don't know how it works, let's face it. (laughs) No, yeah, it's amazing how little we
0: do know. Um, And I know very little about the brain and I'm interested. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of press about how the brain can change and adapt and and how you can improve your brain connections. What can we do to, I guess, train our brains or to change them or make them more powerful or, or make them work for us in a better way?
1: It's all pretty boring advice. I mean, it's the same advice that we know about staving off dementia. The best things are a good healthy diet and nothing crazy, just a really good healthy diet don't smoke, don't drink too much, do plenty of exercise, have good social connection and challenge your brain. But the best thing is something challenging which also promotes social connection. You can learn a particular skill by practice and that's just about creating connections within your brain that strengthen every time you do that activity. But to really improve your whole global brain health, it's exactly the same as your body health. So as we
0: get older, um, just looking at myself in the mirror, you know, you sort of tend to, to stop growing your brain in some ways. I mean, there are things such as raising a family or new challenges at work. But I recently started learning a new language and an instrument and I can feel... Uh, where I push at the boundaries of, of how I use my brain. So, on the inside, would my brain be changing in any way, electrically or physically?
1: Absolutely, what
0: instrument are you learning? Huh, nothing fancy it's the ukulele which they call the instrument for white girls with no musical talent, but
1: still <laughs> I'm, I'm learning it oh that's fantastic. You are create every time you learn a new piece of fingering on the fret, you are creating new uh, connections within your brain and strengthening them and when they become unconscious. Uh, could you read music before you started? Uh, Yes, but only from primary school. Ah, See, you're creating a new language there. You're doing all the right things. That's what we should all be doing.
0: Yes, and does that help the brain in terms of its health as well or in terms of fending off any brain illnesses or is it just about using what you've got to a greater extent?
1: No, I mean, the, the research on dementia would show that using your brain And regular exercise are the two things that would improve your brain health into age. I don't think there's much research to say that other brain diseases, something like Parkinson's or whatever, but I'm certainly not an expert in that area. Say you're very good at Sudoku or something um, and you do it over and over again, you're not really learning a new skill. So It's probably not as good as, say, what you're doing, which is a language or or, or an instrument or being in a group that has some sort of activity that involves problem solving or providing services because those things, you're actually making your brain do new things all the time. So you spoke
0: about um, doing operations and finding that um, some brain activity had adapted and and moved to a different area which enabled you to do that surgery. What kind of other fascinating things have you seen? I mean, sometimes we see on the news these operations with people awake and, and being operated on in a brain operation and playing an instrument or something. What are some of the extraordinary things that have really made you take pause?
1: We operated on one lady with a very large brain tumour and we were terribly worried that we weren't going to be able to remove as much as we hoped because both of the major speech areas looked like they were involved with tumour. Anyway, we started and uh, the way that we we do this is my anaesthetist sits with the patient while they're awake and just chats away, um, you know, tell us about how you met your husband, let's talk about your wedding, what's your job involved, tell us about your kids, you've got any pets, where's your favourite holiday... We just, la, 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 and while I'm operating, I can just hear them talking in the background and I can tell if there's any slurring or minor problems with the words or anything else and we can know when to stop. And so we took out one bit that we thought would be essential for speech and she kept talking and we took out another bit and we ended up with this massive hole with all of the tumour gone that we could see and she was still chatting away. I mean, sometimes that just fascinates me. I just don't understand how that happened, but anyway, that's what happened. Isn't
0: that amazing? And that is the total area that you would expect would be operating
1: that facility for speech? Yeah. You would expect in the normal course of events that we had taken out all of the speech areas in her brain. And after you
0: finished off and she went about her life, did she have any problems? No, she was, she's still
1: great. Isn't that amazing? Years later. Wow.
0: And, and then what, the other
1: amazing thing is is what people talk about during their brain surgery. You just learn so much. People are so diverse. And of course, they've got a few drugs on board that make them a little bit disinhibited. So they're happy to talk about anything. My goodness, some of the things that people have talked about, and I've learned all about pig shooting and... So many different things that people have just chatted away while we've been operating on them. It's fantastic. I love it. Someone told me that when people have a colonoscopy and they
0: have that twilight sedation, they come out with all sorts of inappropriate things. And, and I am the yeah. world's most inappropriate speaker anyway, so now I'm terrified <laughs>
1: of having Yeah, well, you, you, could be, you could be in trouble because, yes, that, that little bit of disinhibition. Yeah. I had one guy trying to line me up with a date. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's good.
0: I think that's quite flashering. He couldn't hold back. Why wouldn't he? It wasn't for him. He was trying
1: to find me someone else. Oh, right.
0: I thought he was making a move. That would be bold. No, not making a move. Someone was in your brain and you started making a move. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that story. When you go out and about, what's the main thing that people say to you if they find out what you do?
1: you try and not talk about it that much because it does tend to dominate the conversation a little bit because everyone wants to know but the really good thing is that my partner's a hot air balloon pilot and so after I met him 13 years ago what I usually do is just people say what do you do and I say I'm a neurosurgeon and he pops in and says oh I'm a hot air balloon pilot and everyone goes wow, a hot air balloon pilot, and they want to talk to him. So that's really good so that I can just uh, concentrate on whatever else I'm doing.
0: That's a, I love that. What a way out. You've, you've certainly picked the right partner there. What a mix, you two. Well, uh, Professor Drummond, it's been so fantastic to speak to you and I feel like I'm just wasting your time by picking your brain, so to speak, so I will set you free back into the world to make all those valuable connections, do those operations and, and ride a dinosaur or book about Bible stories
1: for children. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Drive is a Future Women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Make sure you've subscribed so you never miss an episode and we'd love it if you could leave a rating and review as it really does help us reach more people.